So when our middle son, Cole, uh, moved out of the house, we decided that we would take his bedroom and uh, slap some new paint on the walls, put a couch in, put a TV against the wall, and call it a movie room, right? We wanted to feel fancy. And uh, we put a little bit into the decor. We found these really cool uh, canvas uh, remakes of movie posters, and we framed those and put those around, and we got some movie reels that I bought off eBay, and I put those on the wall, and then I started going on to eBay looking for old antique movie cameras. I didn't really even care who made them, or I didn't care about their history, I didn't care. I just wanted them to look oldie, old-timey, right? I wanted them to be cool-looking, and I would put them on display. But what I ran across was predominantly Kodak cameras, because they've been around for so long, and as I found more and more of the cameras, I started doing necessarily just a little bit more research to find out what I was getting and whether these were worth what I was paying, and they're surprisingly not that expensive just because so many of them were made. I didn't realize how long movie cameras have been around. First of all, the Eastman Kodak Company was started in 1888, and in 1900, they started making the Brownie, which for decades and decades was the most popular and most used movie camera, home movie camera there ever was. This one here is called a Cinecodac 8. And this was first made in 1933. This is the kind of camera, if you've ever seen home movie footage on the battlefield in World War II, this was probably the camera that that was, this very one actually, this exact one. <laughs> so if you wanna buy it after service, I can sell it to you. But this kind of camera right here was the one they were taking those kind of movies on. This one here is an advancement. It's made out of a more plastic-like. It's not actually plastic, it's a, it's a proprietary material. But in 1949, they started making this one. This is the kind that you can look through this viewfinder and it sees that way and you could take pictures. That one's called the Hawkeye. And this, of course, is one of the most famous models of the Brownie. And they started making this one in 1958. It became immensely popular. Families were able to own these, and then this one here is an advancement on that. Again, made it out of a lighter plastic in 1961, and they continued to do that year after year after year. Kodak became so successful that they had 70% of the market share of all, seven out of every 10 cameras ever sold were Kodak. They made all the film for movies. They were dominating and they were working at a 70% margin of profit. 70% profit on everything they were doing. But I want you to hear this. What drove them was the owner's desire to make the camera, in his words, as convenient as the pencil. He himself had become frustrated by how inaccessible it was for the average person to be able to take a picture and develop that or take a movie and develop that. And he prioritized making it simple to be able to take a movie and develop it. In 1975, Kodak was the first, listen, 
to invent, in 1975, the first to invent a digital, filmless camera. And I'm going to tell you why that's so important, because a little bit later, we hear the story of Kodak as they filed Chapter 11 bankruptcy in 2012. Now, for decades, they had been the most successful company. Seven out of 10 cameras were theirs. In 1996, Kodak had already sold hundreds of millions of cameras, were worth more than $31 billion, and were the fifth most, pop, or fifth most valuable brand in the entire world. And then by 2012, they were filing Chapter 11 bankruptcy, and they were delisted from the Dow Jones Industrial Average. They were not allowed to be sold on the New York Stock Exchange. And why is that? In 1975, they developed the first digital camera, but they were not allowed to release it by the management. An engineer had figured out a way to make a camera be able to capture an image without film. The management said, we do not want to lead people away from film cameras. They were afraid that this innovation would distract people from what they believed was the most important thing about what they did. They had forgotten that their goal, their motive, their purpose, their mission was to make it more convenient, to make it more accessible to every single person so that every person could take pictures and view those pictures. They wanted them to do it their way. And when I hear the story of Kodak, who went from the most successful to fading away and becoming a story of tragic loss, a story of failure, a story of lack of innovation, a story of standing on something that left the core value of how they began, I can't help but to think that modern Christianity has already filed bankruptcy and didn't know it that we have left behind the core value of loving people first above everything else and put everything else in the margin so that we make sure that above all things we love people. That we love people above anything and everything else. So if I were to ask you, if you were to read the whole Bible, what would you say that we, the most important thing, the most important thing above anything else, if you were to read the Bible, what is the commission of Christians? What is the most important thing a Christian is supposed to do? You can answer anything you want. It just has to be one word. One word. What is the absolute most important thing for a Christian to do? Go ahead, say it. Okay, you got it right because I sort of fed you that answer, right? Now, you gave the right answer, but I want you to hang on to that for just a second. Matthew 22, 36 through 40 says this. Teacher, this was, by the way, a religious expert in the law. He absolutely knew the law better than probably most of the people in that crowd, and he was hoping better than even Jesus himself. He said, teacher, which of God's law is the most important? Which of God's laws is the most important? Rule for us to obey. And Jesus replied to him, you should 
Love the Lord your God completely. Love him with all your mind. Love him with all that you are. Love him in all that you think. This is the greatest rule and the most important of all God's laws. The second rule is also important like the first one. Most translations say the second is as important as the first. You should love other people as much as you love yourself. All God's laws, notice it doesn't say you should love everyone else as much as you love God. It says that you should love everyone else as much as you love yourself. All God's laws that Moses gave us came from these two rules. All the things that the prophets wrote also came from them. Jesus had at his disposal the historic books, the, 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 the Pentateuch, uh, we call the Pentateuch, what uh, in the Jewish faith is called the Torah. Those are the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those are the books of the laws of God given to people. And then all the writings, there's five uh, prophetic books all given to us and, and the foretelling and the prioritization and all of the warnings that God gives us. Jesus had access to all of those things. And to an expert in the law, Jesus said, the most important thing that you can do is love and love. Love and love, those are the two most important things you do. He said every other law comes from those two laws, which is to love, which means that love is the highest law. Then Jesus goes on to say this in John 15, nine through 15. He says, I've loved you the way my father has loved me. Make yourselves at home in my love. If you keep my commands, you'll remain intimately at home in my love. That's what I've done kept my father's commands and made myself at home in his love. I've told you these things for a purpose that, you, that my joy might be your joy and your joy wholly mature, a perfect joy. So this is my command, love one another the way I loved you. This is the very best way to love. Put your life on the line for your friends and you're my friends when you do the things I command you. I'm no longer calling you servants because servants don't understand what their master is thinking and planning. You see, we have to stop pretending like God's will is a mystery to us when Jesus says his will for us is plain and clear. No, I've named you friends because I let you in on everything I've heard from the Father. You didn't choose me. Remember, I chose you and put you into the world to bear fruit, fruit that won't spoil, that'll last forever. As fruit bearers, whatever you ask the Father in relation to me, he gives you. In other words, anything you ask that fulfills the objective of being fruitful, God will always, always, always say yes to. So when he says no, it might be something we reflect on and say, hmm, Maybe that's not fulfilling God's plan to bear fruit. But remember the root command, love one another. So we have the old law, the old covenant before Jesus, the law of Moses that says love, 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 love. That's the greatest command. And then Jesus says under the new covenant, under the covenant of grace, love is the greatest command. You got the answer right. If you were thinking something else, but were like, I was gonna say Jesus at first, because Jesus is always the right answer, right? Sunday school, Jesus is the correct answer. Love is the correct answer. Good job at getting that right, but there is a huge, huge disconnect between what we say we believe is the most important thing and what's actually the most important thing to us. 
Here's how I know that to be true. According to a national poll, when asked to give the top 10 characteristics of a Christian, I'm just gonna give you the top three of each list. Here's what people responded. Those who identify as a religion other than Christianity called Christians this. Number three, self-righteous. Number two, hypocritical. And number one, judgmental. That's all those who identify as other than Christian. Those who identify as non-religious said that Christians are number three, self-righteous. Same answer. Number two, they gave us a little bit of grace and put judgmental at another number two. Number one, hypocritical. Universally, those who are religious and non-religious see Christians as self-righteous, judgmental, and hypocritical. Interestingly, nobody ever accused Jesus of any of those things. You wanna guess how Christians saw themselves? Number three, loving. Number two, compassionate. And number one, giving. So not only do we as Christians have a dangerously distorted and inaccurate perspective of ourselves, we shockingly don't even put loving as the number one characteristic of us. When Jesus said the most important thing above all other things, there is nothing more important than loving. We as Christians don't even give ourselves the credit for being loving. We call ourselves giving. And statistics now show that the average Christian gives 2.8% of their income to the church or to charity. So we're not even what we say we are, our number one quality, we're really crappy at that. Imagine how crappy we are at number three. <laughs> so if we stand any chance of doing what Jesus commanded us to do, making the most important thing important, if we stand any chance of not becoming the Kodak story of world religions, we had better abandon the sinking ship of modern Christianity and learn to start loving who Jesus loved and loving them how he loved them. So get ready to write quickly. By loving who Jesus loved, I will be number one invited to see him for who he really is. So there's a lot of reasons we don't know more than we do. Uh, first reason is this, is because we simply don't want to. There's some things you don't want to know. I remember there was a, a church in uh, Dublin in the, in the Bay Area that wanted to uh, bring me on staff as an executive pastor and wanted um, to pay for me to get my master's degree because it was a very highly educated area and they wanted their pastors to have at very minimum master's degree, preferably a doctorate degree so that people they were talking to felt like they were on equal ground with those who were teaching them about the Bible. And I said, no, thank you. I got through college, I liked college mostly because my friends were at college and there was girls at college. That's why I liked college. I really got through everything else. I had no desire to go learn more. Lisa's brother, more degrees than a thermometer, has multiple degrees in multiple fields. He's a doctor, he preaches at Jessup. He's a very, very smart guy and loves to learn more. 
There are things you don't want to know. I'm going to give you an example of what you don't want to know. Every night, there is something called a demodex mite, and there are millions of them that feed on your skin, on your face, mate on your face, lay eggs in your hair follicles, and then eventually they will explode because they don't have anuses from which to dispel all of the skin they've eaten off of you. Look it up. I did. I don't want to know that, but it's true. I'm just going to leave that with you. The second reason we don't know more is because we don't have the capacity to. There is an infinite amount of knowledge. It just goes on forever and ever in fields that only the brightest minds of that field know much of what can be known about that field. And you and I, we don't have the capacity to know everything about everything. So there's what we don't want to know. There's what we're not capable of knowing. And then there's number three. And this is the reason that I think that um, we're in the shape that we're in sometimes as Christians is because we don't put ourselves into a place where we will learn more about something because of what that knowledge will cost us. What we'll have to give up once we know that thing. And by that I mean, if you were to sit down and hear somebody's story and they were a person in a group of people, um, whether it's religious or political or gender or sexuality, if you knew more about them as an individual and their story, it might require you to look at your opinions differently about that group of people. And so we don't want to be engaged in those conversations. And the reality is, we often don't want to really know what God's will is for us when it comes to being a follower of Christ. We really don't want to know him because knowing him means that we are now responsible and accountable for what we know. We become accountable for everything we know. Listen to 1 John 4, 7 through 8. My friends, we should all love each other. It is God who makes us able to love other people. Everyone who loves other people has become a child of God. Now, this is one of those where you go, somebody loves somebody, they're automatically a child of God. This is that quantifiable 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that is what love looks like, and when somebody is capable of doing it, they're incapable of doing it by themselves, So they must know God in order to be able to do that. But conversely, if we are unable to do it, we don't know God as well as we think we do. Everyone who loves other people has become a child of God. That person knows God. Anyone who does not love other people does not know God. We know this because God's own nature is love. In other words, when you're with God and you know God, you know that he is all about love because he is love and everything he does is from love. And that makes us uncomfortable because we are accountable to love like he loves. Secondly, by loving who Jesus loved, I'll be trusted to be with those he loves to be with. By loving who he loves, he's going to trust me to be with those he loves to be with. So the one thing I can say about modern Christianity is that we love to be with other Christians. 
I know this because I've grown up in modern Christianity and I've been in every kind of church, every size of church, different denominations. And one thing that remains true is if we truly wanted people other than other Christians to be with us, we would probably make church more inviting to unbelievers and those who aren't Christians. We would make it far more inclusive. We would make it far more accessible and relatable and a lot less churchy. But it's a place where we feel saved from the ickiness that we feel when we are outside of this context. The fear, the anxiety, the anger we feel with a world gone wild. And so this is a place that we've built to give ourselves refuge, that we can be reclusive and inclusive of those who look, act, and talk like us. Jesus, on the other hand, though, really loved to be with the wounded and the marginalized and the rejected. He sought out those who didn't fit in. He told stories about those who didn't feel comfortable being with or connecting with the people who said they were close to God. As a matter of fact, Jesus made a point at every opportunity he had to repair the broken reputation of God that other people who said they represented God gave God. This terrible reputation that God had earned through those who said they knew him and were representing him. Let me give you a couple good examples of that. This is Mark 2, 15 through 17. After Levi, this is later who would be called Matthew. Levi is his Hebrew name. Matthew is his uh, Greek name. Uh, Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to his home. This is after Jesus had invited Levi, a tax collector, to come to his home, uh, to to be a follower, and then then Matthew invited him to have dinner. Uh, His disciples to, as a dinner guest, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. I love this parenthetical statement, there were many people of this kind among Jesus's followers. I love that Jesus had a crowd of disreputable sinners following him, because that tells me Jesus was doing it the right way. They didn't feel excluded, they didn't feel marginalized, they didn't feel judged, they didn't feel condemned. But when the teachers of the religious law who were Pharisees saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with such scum? Jesus heard this, he told them, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. And I have, listen, come to call not those who think they're righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Jesus says, I love hanging with people who know they're messed up, who know they're sinning, who know they're making mistakes. That's my jam, I love hanging with those people. And what was he calling them to do? to be in relationship and friendship with him. And you said, oh, he was calling them to give up their sinful ways. Well, he was bad at it then. 
Because Peter, after following Jesus for three years, denies Jesus. Even after Jesus warns him, you're going to deny me. And Peter had a chance to change it and do it differently. Judas, who had been following Jesus for three years, literally betrays Jesus. Jesus was not about making people less sinful, but making people love him more and see the true face of God for who God really is. Listen to this passage in Luke 15, 7. Jesus, after telling, after the same judgment, same Pharisees criticizing him for being with sinners, Jesus gives parables, the parable of the, uh, of the prodigal son, the parable of the widow who lost the, the silver coin, and, 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 uh, and uh, 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 there, there was uh, one more, the sheep, the, the one sheep that goes away, and 99, he leaves the 99 to find the one, and he says this, in the same way I tell you, there was more joy in heaven over one sinner who changes his heart and life than over 99 good people who don't need to change. Can I hurt your feelings for a second? God gets more excited about those who are unbelievers who become believers than believers getting together and just continuing to be believers. Jesus really loves a good heart change story. Matthew 5, 43 47. You're familiar with the old written law, love your friend and its unwritten companion, hate your enemy. I'm challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the supple moves of prayer. And then you're working out your true selves, your God-created selves. This is what God does. He gives his best, the sun to warm and the rain to nourish to everyone regardless, the good and the bad, the nice and the nasty. If all you do is love the lovable, do you expect a bonus? Anybody can do that if you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? Any run-of-the-mill sinner does that. He says the thing that sets us apart is our ability to love those who hate us, to pray for those who curse us, to go the extra mile and do everything in the opposite spirit of what's being shown to us. If there is a world that hates us, I don't truly believe the world hates us. I believe the world hates what we represent, which is not Jesus. Because Jesus attracted a crowd Those who followed Jesus were marginalized, hurt, disenfranchised, abused, neglected, judged, and condemned. And they followed Jesus because he was the first one who said, God loves you. You don't need to change a thing to earn even an ounce more of God's love for you. As a matter of fact, you're incapable of changing any of that. So follow me and live the life you were meant to live. And the best example of that is this last story in this point. A woman had been caught literally, the language indicates that they literally walked in on her and this man having sex. She wasn't married to him. Interestingly, he wasn't in the crowd. He wasn't brought before them, a woman was. And it says this. Jesus said, let the first stone be thrown because here's what the religious leaders asked. The law of Moses tells us we can stone her to death because she's been caught in adultery. 
Jesus said nothing. He stooped down, began to write in the dirt, and then he stood up after they kept pushing him, and he said, let the first stone be thrown by the one among you who has not sinned. Once again, Jesus bent down to the ground and resumed writing with his finger. The Pharisees who heard him stood still for a few moments, and then they began to leave slowly, one by one, beginning with the older men. Eventually, only Jesus and the woman remained, and Jesus looked up. Dear woman, where is everyone? Where, why are we alone? Did no one step forward to condemn you? And she said, Lord, no one has condemned me. And he said, well, I don't condemn you either. All I ask is that you go and from now on avoid the, sin that, the sins that plague you. I love this story because Jesus had the law on his side, he had the justification to be able to say, yes, the law of Moses commands it. Scripture says so. And yet he chose love. The story of the prodigal son is this son goes and squanders the father's fortune. He lives in a vile manner comes back and the father could have and should have was justified in rejecting him and turning him away. And instead the father chose love. In every story Jesus tells about the brokenness of us as sinners, he doesn't use scripture which he had available to him. All the verses we quote from Leviticus that we love to clobber people on top of the head with. He had access to, Jesus knew the Bible better than any of us do. Would you agree with that? And yet he quoted none of those scriptures to them. He didn't condemn this woman. As a matter of fact, he protected her from the religious leaders who were quoting scripture to her. Can I tell you how we get back to being true followers of Christ if we stand a chance at all? how we really love those who Jesus loved. I'm gonna give you a litmus test of how you know that you're loving like Jesus loved. If you say, yes, I know, we need to love everybody, but. Or if you say, yes, everybody should be welcome in the church, but. And you have some really good conviction, but the, but the Bible does, the Bible is, the Bible tells us then one of two things is happening. Number one, you tragically underestimate the power of God's love to be able to transform, God's love by the way shown through you, to transform a life. More so than a thousand sermons and then 10,000 scriptures you quote. Love will do more to transform a life than bringing them here and letting them hear me speak or sending them a message that you go, oh, you see, that was great. I've got a friend and they're a pagan. I mean, they're a sinner. I mean, they're the worst of the worst. This is a great message for them. The second thing we might think is that and again, tragically, we believe that we cannot wholly and completely 
and truly love somebody unless they change something about themselves. And they qualify by acknowledging their wrongdoing, by saying that they're interested in getting forgiveness, at least show us some contrition, show us that you know what you're doing is wrong. You need to change a little bit at least so that I can release a little more love and then the more you change, the more I can completely love you and when you're finally behaving like you're supposed to behave, then I can fully love you. If any of those things are qualifiers, you do not love like Jesus loved and you do not love who Jesus loves. And that is the mark of a great Christian and a terrible follower of Christ. The church has done that to us. Me. I spent years of my ministry believing desperately that if I could convince somebody of how bad it is, what they're doing, that it's so much better to not be bad, that they would be better. And I found that all I did was make people hide from me or hide their lives from me so that they could get just some love from me. And if there's a sin I repent for, it's making people believe that they have to perform or change. to receive love from me. Because if that is how I believe that God has called me or commissioned me or wants me to serve his purposes here, I do not know God. Because I want to read this final passage. Romans 5, 6 through 8 says this, When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though some might perhaps be willing to die for a person who's especially good. God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. You see, the greatest expression, the most powerful, the most unrestricted, the most pure expression of God's love was when we were at our absolute worst. That's when he loved us at his absolute best. And that is what he calls us to do. Third and finally, and I'll do this very quickly. By loving who Jesus loved, I'll be chosen to be him to those who don't know him. So listen, judgment and criticism and and conditional acceptance, condemnation, guilt, those you can find in any unexceptional person. What I mean is it takes absolutely no real morality or decency or goodness to judge somebody else. You can be morally corrupt and have nothing but ugliness and evilness in you and you can see someone through the lens of their sins, their mistakes, their missteps, their failures, their shortcomings. 
Ugliness will always see ugliness in somebody else. Unexceptional little people see others that way. As a matter of fact, Jesus says, it's our own sin that causes us to see the sin of other people and not just see it, but to exaggerate sin in people's lives and underplay the sin in our life. He says, man, look at you, a utility pole, shattering the china and hitting old people in the head and stopping traffic because you've got a giant log hanging out of your eyes and yet you have the audacity to call out the speck in somebody else's. And you say, I don't don't think it's a speck. I think it's bad what they're, 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 have you seen what they're putting in books and have you seen how the parades and have, not a speck according to you, a speck according to God. Jesus calls the specks in the poles. We don't. Jesus says what's a big sin and what's a small, we don't. And you say, yeah, but Jesus called them to righteousness. Jesus called them to righteousness. You and I aren't righteous. We don't get to call anybody anywhere. We just love people because that's all we get to do because we aren't qualified to do anything else. Sorry for yelling. Jamie, don't put that online. <laughs> She's like, I, well, I know what the Instagram clip's gonna be. People are gonna be like, good Lord. He's on something. Listen to John 17, 25 through 26. Jesus praying, Father, you always do what's right. The world's people don't know you, but I know you. And these disciples, those who have been following me, know that you have sent me because, listen, I have shown them what you are like. And I will continue to show them what you are like. Then they will love other people in the same way that you love me, and I myself will be in them. Did you hear that? We represent him And people will know that we know him because we will love people like the Father loved Jesus and like Jesus loved us. We are not known to be followers of Christ. We are known to be Christians. And Christians are not people that other people want to know. We need to distance ourselves from Christianity as far as we can get and run to the feet of Jesus and say, I'm sorry for thinking that was you and that is how I get people closer to you. I want to be near you. I want to know your love so that I can love others like you love me. John 13, 34 through 35. So I give you a new command. Love each other deeply and fully. 
Remember the ways that I have loved you and demonstrate your love for others in those same ways. Everyone will know you as my followers if you demonstrate your love to others. Could he be any more clear? That's our job. It's our only job. He said, go and make disciples and baptize them in the name. How do you make disciples if nobody's following? There's plenty of people out there who do a better job at being judgmental and mean-spirited and vitriolic. They're all over the news. They have podcasts. They have television shows. They run for offices. Plenty of that happening. They need someone to represent the real Jesus to them. And that is part of our mission statement. That all of, Summit, or all of Lincoln will know Jesus because number one, we love who Jesus loves. We love who Jesus loves. And we love them how he loved them. And if this is stirring something in you, if this is pushing back on something and you just think, yeah, but, yeah, but, I want you to sit at the feet of Jesus with that. And when you read that passage and he says, they will know you because of your love. Yeah, but have that argument with him. Your argument's not with me. Sit at the feet of Jesus and tell him he's wrong, that his plan is the wrong plan. His way is the wrong way. You've got a better plan. And I'd love you to share how that goes. Because, I want you to hear this, Christians will be judged not on whether we were righteous or unrighteous because by grace we're made righteous. We will be judged based on what we did with what he told us to do. So we will have to give an account for this. Jesus tells stories that reminds us that we're all accountable to God. That what we know about him makes us accountable to him because of the commission he gave us to love like he loved. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes so that you can have a moment to reflect on what God's saying today. Lord, we don't want to be Kodak. We don't want to leave the basic messaging of the gospel that God loved you so much that while we were still in our sin, rebellious and turned from you, you came to us not to condemn us, but to save us and give us new life here and through all of eternity. That's what you did for us and what you commissioned us to tell others that you did for them. Your word says that you enable us to be more loving. And so by knowing you more, by being with you more, by imitating you more, we can love like you more. And that's my prayer for every person who calls this church their home, 
that they would help us make your name known to all of Lincoln, Roseville, Rockland, Sheridan, Marysville, everywhere that surrounds us, any life that we come into contact with, that we would make Jesus known to them because we love who Jesus loves. And that's everybody. That's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.